Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Before we begin, just a massive thank you to however you are listening to this. We really do appreciate your support. We record the podcast every Monday and if you do enjoy it, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Why not drop us a review while you're there? Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. I'm Ben James. Now, in the last week or so, the sport of rugby has been rocked by the stories of players in their 30s and 40s uh, being diagnosed with early onset dementia and probable CTE. This is all part of a, a legal action that is being taken by those players against World Rugby, the RFU and the WRU over alleged negligence uh, when it comes to brain injuries. Obviously, last week, former Welsh back rower Alex Popham and England hooker Steve Thompson were two of the high-profile ones. This week, former Dragons and Wales under-20 centre Adam Hughes has come forward as the youngest player to join the legal action, aged just 30. Adam has not received the same diagnosis as the other players. He's been diagnosed with brain injuries and post-concussion symptoms, but he has been advised by medics that he is on the same medical trajectory as Alex Popham, Michael Lippmann and Steve Thompson, all of whom obviously have brain injury early onset dementia and probable CTE. We spoke to Adam ahead of him going public with this uh, and this is the conversation that we had with him. So I guess then to start with just talk me through diagnosis then that that you've had recently. So uh, like other players you've probably spoken to I've been through all the tests the brain scans uh, the neurological tests neuropsychiatric tests psychology tests uh, which is really a very in-depth testing uh, and that's I'll be honest, the main reason I took up um, their offer, really, because I wanted to find out myself. It's been two years now since I retired. I really really wanted to see what's happened in those two years. Uh, That's what would be really interesting. Um, So, yeah, I did those tests and had the results going back just a few weeks ago now. And for me, uh, the results I had weren't a shock at all. You know, you know when you've been through it, when you you know you've you've, um, you've dealt with what I've dealt with in the past, for somebody to come along and say, yeah, you know, we found we found damage on there. You're like, oh, no, not a surprise one bit. You know, I say my example is just like walking around with a limp for the last seven years and realising you've got a bad ankle. You know, that's that's the sort of uh, prognosis it was. Um, so he basically had the test results back, um, explained exactly what his um, interpretation of those results were uh, and what my thoughts were and, and my experiences. And um, so just taking those, and they're good to know, you know, because I can now deal with anything that comes my way. Um, you might have seen what Popham's been given and other players. Um, they're 10 years further down the line than I am. Uh, but what these test results are showing is, visible damage that can be seen from my playing career. Um, there are, within the sort of psychological tests, um, there are obvious standout instances within that that they can see. Um, so for myself now, it's right, no, I've got that sort of, I've got that line drawn. Now it's a case of keeping an eye on it for the next few years to see where that goes. Because is there much that you can sort of do yourself in terms of, you know, you, you can see what Alex Popham and Steve Thompson have and, and you know, you're, you've been told that you're on a similar trajectory. Is, is there much that you can do to influence that trajectory? Not a lot. Look, there are things out there which people are, are now starting to invent and, and saying there's, you know, there's medical knowledge behind it. But these are all sort of, they're up in the air at the moment. You know, this is such a new thing to everyone, even the neurologists. Um, and that's one of the frustrations of this. Look, if I go and break my leg, which I did a few times, I can get repaired and I'm fine. You know, that's not an issue. Uh, but that is the biggest worry about the 
these head injuries is it's almost like a point of no return. Um, and it was like, like a, there is a constant snowball effect, which is the, what I had during my career was the snowball effect. You know, you hope by stopping when I did, you almost stop that snowball from rolling. I think it's inevitable uh, as the years go on, as you can probably see from the older guys, that um, you know, that will get rolling again and things could potentially get worse. So how did the how did the sort of this lawsuit get in touch with you and how did they approach you? How, how did that come about? Because my understanding was that they haven't exactly gone looking for players with concussion. It's this largely just being sort of one player and then it's in their sort of band of contact. So it's not really like a widespread sort of... So no, no, yeah, it's not a Torben cold calling or anything like that. Um, you know, it's been a case of that I, I did quite a lot of, of media when I retired about my head injury. So, you know, it's been out there that you know, the reason I actually retired was concussion. Um, and I think people know that. So when it started to come up um, that there was somebody out here that was willing to help us with all these tests, and give us a, a sort of diagnosis for what's been going on, which wasn't available to us back then. Um, you know, I, I sort of snapped their, their arm off really and said, yeah, you know, this is something I can't say no to. Um, and as I say, the main reason I went into it is for those tests. The reason we end up where we are now is because of what I've really found out in between that time. So, so what is it that you hope to, will come of the, the lawsuit? For me, it's about having a, a completely positive change on the game uh, and educating. Look, I still fully believe... Um, look, and I said this when I retired, I do believe rugby is in a place now where it is one of these most proactive sports for head injuries. I really do. I think they're bringing in a lot um, to try and help the player and get them off that pitch if they notice anything. But a lot of it will still come up to the player. It's still a lot of, you know, relies on that player, to be honest. Um, but where this, where this case goes back to is that time whereby there was nothing in place for the players. There was no guidelines in place for physios or doctors or coaches to work off or players. Um, and then, but the issue is, did they know the same risks at the same time? Uh, and that's why this case is basically based around. Because I think when when you retired, there was I think John Barkley was speaking at a, a similar time, talking about the sort of cognitive tests and how basically a player could just sort of say that he felt fine, and and then that would be the end of the issue, and you, and he could play again. Yeah, yeah, and this is the big like, when I first started playing the Dragons it was a case of you know, what's the score where, where are we playing you know and if you got it fairly close you, you were able to stay on but that's no physios doctors or anyone's fault because they were the guidelines you know we as as people on the shop floor your doctors your physios and players we take what is given to us from above so you know, it's the people who are at the very top who have the who have the knowledge who have the access to the expert the worldwide experts that give them the guidance on these type of things, um, and that was just not handed down. You know, I don't see this as any in, individual's fault at any club I was at. I just truly believe we went by the guidelines, but the guidelines were nowhere up to scratch based on the knowledge that they had. In terms of the tests you had, obviously when Alex had his test, they sort of they pointed to the amount of sub concussions he had. There was something you know, nearly a hundred thousand subconcussions was that mentioned to you because obviously you had eight quite big concussion yeah. incidents but w- w- yeah. was subconcussions also a part of that or was yes yeah, so, yeah subconcussions are the main issue really and what i mean by guidelines i mean there was nothing in place to stop me from having a big head knock and then another one very shortly after which is your subconcussion basically and the other ones of course are damage you know you can take a big head knock 
these days to have a good few months out, get fully recovered, and you should be okay. Back then, it was a big head knock, and two to three days later, you could literally be back in training, you know, and, and that's the sub concussions that he was on about, of which I would have suffered many, many of those as well. Um, uh, and, and I suppose that is the issue, and that's why the guidelines, which are now slowly coming into place, should help out those players from now going forward. Just talk to me. Uh, how has how the symptoms affected you since you retired? Then, what, what is the sort of general problems that you face on a day to day basis? So, for me, for my last concussion, it was basically I've adapted. I've adapted now to the to the symptoms that I, I took from my rugby career to my sort of civilian life. Um, for me, one of the worst ones was purely having to build up my threshold to exercise from scratch. You know, I could literally not get my heart rate up above the average and, and not have to sit in a dark room for the rest of the day. You know, I've had to really build that up from nothing. Um, and, I, and I've learned now where, where the line is, you know, and I can't go past that. You know, if, if I try and sort of exercise too strenuously, that, that would almost ruin me out for the rest of the day. Um, sensitivity to light and noise, that's one. And also concentration uh, is one I, that, that you struggle with. Uh, but you, you learn to adapt, you know, and, and just but just because you learn to adapt doesn't mean it's right. Um, it's just what you're getting used to, isn't it? Um, but uh, the, you know, they are the type of things that you constantly have to live with. And what you don't want to do is notice them getting worse over the years. Look, it's only been two years since I've finished. Uh, and I'm starting to learn to live with those um, adaptions now. But what you've got to keep an eye on is making sure they don't get any worse, which, you know, you look at people like Pops and Steve Thompson, it, it has got worse. Uh, going back to those those eight sort of concussive incidents, I, I can only imagine that now you've learned to adapt to sort of the symptoms you've got now at the time the symptoms would have been sort of much worse, wouldn't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and when you have those huge knocks, they do wipe you out for a good couple of days. Um, and you slowly, and what I noticed was the end of the career when we, we understood it a bit more and the physios and the, and the doctors were, were given further education on this was how you then start, like I say, you build up from scratch again. You know, you almost start on a base level, which you have a baseline test and then you take it from there and you don't go to stage two without hitting stage one, so et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is good which is the way it should be, um, but it, that's not the way it was. Um, and and that's, that's the real concern, really. And, you know, if that those those guidelines were in place in those earlier years, then we wouldn't, not many of us would find in the position we are right now. And, and that's the that's the main main worry, really. Because obviously, you, you sort of, in a case study that you, you did sort of for this, you, you talked about some of those concussion incidents and, and just the fact that, you know, there were times when you, you couldn't remember, I think it was one where you freeze, sat freezing cold in, in a coat, with, with simply no idea as to how you got there. Uh, yeah, so this I, I've had a couple of instances like this, but one that really sticks in my head. It was I was playing for the Chiefs. It was against Saracens. It was um, I think it was an LB Cup final actually, and I just I literally remember one part of the game. That's it, one part of the game. And the next thing I knew, I, I it's almost like I just woken up and I was sat in the stand, one of the big sub coaches looking around me, just going, "How on earth have I ended up here?" Basically. Um, and players around me being like, you know, you, you were you were completely off it. Like you were standing in the wrong places, calling the wrong calls, standing, you know, where the opposition should be. Um, and I spoke to Baxter. I said, look, uh, Rob, can you explain what happened? And he said, you literally came in at half time and broke down. You know, he said, I couldn't put you back on that pitch. But, but the the scary thing is, is is sitting there going, I have no idea what you're on about. You know, and, and that's that's a huge worry. You know, you're playing for twenty thousand people on live TV. You don't even you don't even remember the steps you were taking. Uh, you'd think you'd remember something like that. Um, and the same again for the Dragons uh, preseason game. I think it was. I caught the end of um, Navidi's knee accidentally in the bottom of my jaw. 
And I remember starting the game and then, like it was yesterday, I just remember waking up in the physio room going, how, how, why am I here? And then they explained the reasons why. But it's almost like that part of your life is completely taken away from you. So you remember a few minutes you felt playing and maybe a part of the day going up to it. And next thing you know, it's like you just open your eyes and you're in that physio room. And it's, it's a really, really strange sensation and quite sort of like nerve-wracking as well. How many sort of incidents like that would you say you sort of lost because you know I think it was quite shocking last week when sort of Steve Thompson and, and Poppin were sort of talking about some of the, the moments they lost obviously they're, they're at a, a later stage of all this but just how many sort of moments are there like that in your career where you, you just have no memory of it a lot look if I was to sit down on a table with a load of boys I played with you know what it's like they sit down they start telling their stories of you know way trips here and these, these games and I can't contribute to it I just don't know I don't remember it um, which is a real shame because you know, there was an amazing time during that career and I can only remember probably a handful of them um, which you know and that really brings it to light when you sit with the people you played in and you live those experiences with and you can't contribute to the conversation and that really puts it into perspective then. I suppose that's sort of one of the bittersweet things about this is is because this is obviously such a horrible thing to happen, but it's, it's done playing with, with mates in a game that you love, which yes. probably makes it all the, the harder to process. Because I, I feel that when these concussion stories come up every couple of years, you get a certain sort of group of people in the sport who sort of bristle away from it because the, they fear that this is the sort of death knell for the sport. Yeah. No, when, in in reality, it's probably burying your head in the stand, sand, which is going to do that, isn't it? Yeah. Look, and I've spoken to this about other players now who are involved and not one of us has any intention on this having a negative impact on rugby or rugby stopping, for example. This is all about creating a future for rugby, if anything. Look, the amount of people I speak to, especially as I'm going out and refereeing now and speaking to parents and speaking to players, they, there are a lot of concerns about this going forward, especially from like your amateur players as well. Um, and I think there does need, and like I, like I said to you at the start, I do believe rugby are on the right track. I think they are trying to be proactive about this. But I think with a lot of people coming out and everybody from top to bottom being completely honest about the situation of how it was and where it is now, I think can create a good future for rugby um, and create a positive impact um, at the moment when a lot of people think that what's going on is sort of being swept under the rug uh, I think that makes people a bit nervous about how bad it could actually be uh, but I think look if we're completely honest with it and that's not just players and coaches and physios I mean going to the very very top um, I think that could be have a positive impact on the game as well as educating players Well, this is why this particular action feels different obviously there's legal action involved but it's more the fact that players have been t- taken tests and have been diagnosed with early onset dementia and probable CTE, which to, to my knowledge is probably the first time that that's happened. This is the first, you know, I think people like Dr. Willie Stewart and everyone have al- always sort of suspected that rugby and, and, and con- contact sports like that had a sort of higher chance of concussion and head injuries. But this is the first time that we've seen sort of tangible evidence. You know, it, it's, it's hard to dismiss you know, rugby and early onset dementia is, is a coincidence now. I think the number, you know, sort of the numbers given last week was something like, is it one in 13 trillion or something that this amount of people in from a, such a small group of demographic could be diagnosed with early onset dementia? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and look, that's the times we're living in now. The technology around this is moving quickly, um, which has allowed players like myself to, to have these, these tests and these results. Um, but again, a lot of education needs to go into this because, you know, I've seen comments like he didn't wear a scrum cap. So, you know, it's almost his own fault. 
you know, and that's so far from the point and the truth. You know, I was going cap most of my career. It barely stops you getting cuts on your head. That's it. Not that I would ever say for for kids not to wear them. I'd always say kids have to wear them because obviously they got softer softer heads than than, than we do, uh, and it will benefit those. But look. We need to we need to be real here. A scrum cap is not going to stop uh, concussions and subconcussions and early onset dementia and probable CTE. That's not going to happen, you know. And they're the type of things that not just players but the general public in in, in you know uh, across the board need to realise. So that was that was my biggest surprise over the last week is the amount of comments throughout any story was just people saying, "Oh well, scrum cap should be mandatory." When you know, wearing a, wearing a scrum cap is effectively wrapping a bandage around the, a bucket of water, isn't it? The water still Still going to move in the bucket yeah look, yeah, yeah but no of course the, the brain the brain is almost like balancing in your head uh within your skull and just because you've got a bit of foam on the outside it's not going to stop that being knocked around inside um and, and that's the issue really look there is a definitely a place for scrum caps but when you're talking about symptoms and, and uh, potential illnesses of this severity it has little impact if i'm honest with you um, and that's really what we need to to spread and no i've seen comments again things like uh they knew the risks. They knew what they were getting themselves in for. But that, again, that completely misses the point of what this is all about. Yes, we knew the risk. Look, I know there's a risk. If I go into a rugby field, I can snap my leg. I can get concussed. I know that. Um, but I also, the issue with this is, we knew the risks at the time, but did the people who were in place and whose, whose responsibility is for the safety of the, of the game and the players who play it, did they know more than what they've let off and didn't put the guidelines in place to make it even safer? And that is what the issue is here is, you know, this document's going back to the mid-1970s to show that concussion was a talking point. Why is it taken up until the NFL action w- w- was taking place for actual reasonable guidelines to come in? I know you're talking, you know, you're talking about over nearly 40 years for that to, to come into, into place. There. And the other thing with that, that whole sort of, they knew they were getting into, I mean, you do know that when you step onto a rugby field, you you can break your neck and anything can happen in an instance, but surely you don't think over a 15 year period that you could end up with early onset dementia in, in 40. I can't, I can't imagine that any no, cool person that. would get yeah. into that. God, no, look, if I knew one of the first times I got knocked out, that if I got knocked out again quite soon after that, I would end up uh, with, um, you know, let's say potential uh, CT example in my 30s. You know, I would never have dreamt of stepping back on that rugby field, but that wasn't, you know, we were educated on that even either with the coaches or physios or doctors um, and, and that is the issue really is did they know that and not feed it down the line were they worried about were they too worried about the game to inform the, the players um, and improve the, the potential for them to be safer playing the game really because look if somebody if, if I say if I broke my leg and the doctor said look you could go back out there in a few weeks but the likelihood is it'll snap again oh, I'll take a few more weeks cheers mate you know just to be safe that's fine because they know that and I've been told that but uh, if somebody's saying to me look okay you've been completely knocked out but you you told me where you are what the score is um, you know you're telling me you feel okay crack on that's going to be fine then oh, okay I'll take your word for it that's fine no we'll do it uh, you know you, you take you take the professional word for it um, and uh, so you only know what you know really don't you as part of the legal action, obviously, there's been a 15-point sort of charter drawn up. Sort of how important is it that these these actions that are taken on sort of, you know, things such as limiting number of substitutes, limiting the amount of contact training throughout the week, things like that, how, how is it important? These are I, think it's, I think it's hugely important. Like they're all saying, look, if you don't learn from your mistakes, you're destined to repeat them. And I think, look, 
take take what players have been through in the past, what they've struggled with and what they're struggling with now, and that that's real life. That has happened. You know, that, that, that there's no fiction behind that. It's just pure fact. So why would you go and do the same thing again? You know, I think coaches are going around to it now, and it's very difficult for coaches with a, with a winner's me, you know winner winner's mentality that they have. You know, they got to do everything in, in in their power to win. So for them to say, oh, you know, I I need these boys to have a good hit out uh, in training in the week, but look, it's probably not in their best interest now, safety wise. It's very very difficult for them. And I really do understand that. Um, but look, if, if as a game we make that decision, it takes the onus away from the individual coaches really. And if the governing body says, right, this is what it's limited to takes the pressure off everyone then and that's what this is all about you know this is about the the organizations that control us all within the game take onus on this and then it makes everything either less pressure or safer for for the individuals involved yeah i suppose at the end of the day it's all about limiting sub concussions isn't it because a concussion can be quite easily identified in there it's a head knock with a symptom isn't it but a sub concussion you know there's no symptoms so it's very hard to to, to limit those if it's if you basically have no guidelines around sort of timings of, of training things like that no exactly and that's me at least now there are a few timings in it but they just that just wasn't the case and that's only going back a few years ago we're not i'm not talking about the 80s or 90s here i'm not talking about the early part of my career and i'm only just 30 um you know and, and that's the issue is um look you are never gonna, you know, it's, and it's a difficult place for a player as well who is just desperate to play, desperate to keep his job, renew his contract, wants to play for his country. You know, you you you've got to tell them, you know, that this is the like you can't go on. Otherwise, they will want to stay on, and that's completely natural. You need to take the power out of almost the player's hands in this situation, and that's what guidelines will do. Moving back to yourself, obviously, this has affected you post rugby. Obviously, you're a qualified pilot, but you can't do that, can you now? No, no, I, I'm going to have to have to give that up, unfortunately. Like I said, uh, with that sort of threshold to exercise, my threshold to movement as well is very, very poor. Um, you know, if I was to go up and do anything which involved too much movement, so too much eye movement, really, uh, again, that'll wipe me out for hours, basically. I'd just be a case of sitting down in the dark room and waiting for it to go, which, which is not suitable in a plane, of course. And then you yeah. were talking about... Uh, recently about being a referee yes I think you told I think you said to, to Chris Gurren at the Argus that you were thinking about becoming professional has that changed since the, the tests or, or how does that work <laughs> yeah because they were quite close together actually uh, look I still very much enjoy being involved in rugby. Look, I don't have a vendetta against rugby whatsoever. I absolutely love the game. Uh, I really want it to be successful and grow in the way it's growing and participation to continue. Um, And I feel like refereeing is almost my way of giving back to it. Um, And I do enjoy it. Look, if it goes professional, great. Um, You know, I am 30 now and that is quite... You know, getting on a bit in some refereeing terms. Uh, I will probably continue to referee, whether even if that be at lower level, because it's something I enjoy, keeps me fit, um, and it keeps me involved, which I which I like. Um, you know, you've probably seen in that sort of press release as well. Uh, they mentioned about when I see head knocks when I referee. Um, it's because I it's because like I say I've been there and done it and felt it myself. I'm just very strict on that because at the lower levels you do see some people smash head quite quite bad, and it's a case of well we haven't got a cold sponge, um, you know just carry on. And I, again, and that comes from the very very top is those guys that seem to feed all the way down um, to make to educate 
not just players at the top level, but in the in the lower leagues as well. Um, so for myself, look, if I see somebody with just a potential head knock, they're off and they're not coming back on. Simple as that. You know, that's the safest way to do it. I, I can't stand there and diagnose concussion. A player is not going to be able to tell how how out of it he is or whether he can carry on or not. So the safest thing to do, and I think it should be at all levels, is off you go. Uh, we'll take as long as we need to assess you and then you come back on if you feel okay. If not, then... You, you sit a week out basically and that's where I put look, and I do get a bit of flat for that of course I do because sometimes it's the team's best player um, but I know deep down I'm a lot more comfortable with that driving away from that ground that I told that player to sit out the rest of the game rather than risk it and potentially him having 5-10 sub-concussions for the rest of the game and is that, that is, that's that's the policy at that level anyway isn't it I think anything yes, yeah, yes it is yeah, sitting out know, if in doubt isn't it it's the whole yeah sitting out if in doubt I know but again it relies on a lot of honesty from players and coaches um, whereas I, I, you know, if I can see a clear head knock and knowing what a good head knock looks like on the behaviour of a player after that, I will tell him myself, look, I've seen this in my own eyes. I can see what I can see how you, you're currently acting. I'm not comfortable with this, and that's the power again that the referee has, and I think they should utilise more often. Don't be, you know, it's tough for referees. Look, a referee can take a huge amount of flack from a coach from telling a player that he's seen with his own eyes that he's not acting right. He's take, had a huge head knock. A coach could go absolutely mental for that. And obviously at the top end, that's even more so. Um, but you, know, you need to give referees those powers uh, to be able to do that, I believe, because they're the closest to the action at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, in terms of you refereeing, how, how does it sort of, affect you doing the fitness levels uh, does it flare up the symptoms at all or, or do you ever it have problems be. with the symptoms it, look because luckily with, with referee in this case if, if just running isn't it there's no there's no knocks or anything involved you know there's not too much movement it's just purely a case of running around um, so I, I tend to be okay with that um, but if I do anything like I say which involves movement that'd be up and down sideways any sort of jumping uh, that's when my my, uh, my symptoms will really flare up and the type of things I have to avoid, really. So refereeing lends itself quite well um, to what I'm still able to do. Speaking there about the the if in doubt sort of thing, obviously when you retired with a concussion, just how sort of aware did you become of things like sort of, you know, Peter and Ben Robinson and, and things like that, uh, sort of these these sort of ongoing stories in the last couple of years that have been trying to generate this, this discussion about concussion in, in, in sort of the last 10 years when it's probably not been on the forefront of everyone's mind? Yeah, that's definitely something I looked into more towards the end. Like, I was probably my own worst enemy at times during my career. Like, I knew I had big problems. You know, I knew that it was now getting towards the end of my career. I could barely just tackle somebody and come out and feel okay. You know, every tackle that seemed to be stars in my eyes. Um, I was, you know, I was almost trying to avoid the inevitable towards the end. Um, but at that point as well, I started looking into it a bit more as well because I started to get a bit more intrigued into how how it really works and what this is. Um, and yeah, so deeper you dig, the more you realise this is not a one-off scenario. This has been happening to people of all ages for many, many years. Um, it's a lot more documented now than it was. Um, but, you know, I think there's, that you see those, um, the Robinson boy as well. There's a lot to learn from people like that. You know, a very healthy young lad with a sub, no, took a, took a sub concussion, which is like I just said to you earlier, was doing a lower, lower league match, took a knock, wasn't taken off, took another knock. And then you see the unfortunate, um, the fortunate ending of that. And that goes to show you is, you know, as healthy as, as these guys might look, guys or girls may look, one concussion, or, uh, one sub concussion can literally end your life. Because I think whenever concussion sort of 
raises its head in the sport. I think a lot of, a lot of people's argument is it's, it's going to take a, a death on the pitch for, for, for things to get taken seriously. Now, hopefully this, this legal action will predate all that and, and means that's not the case because, like I said earlier, this is the first time that there is sort of genuine medical evidence showing links to these these awful sort of things and, and rugby. Yeah, look, let's never hope we get to a point where we see uh, a death on the pitch, especially in, in Wales, um, to do this. And like you say, this court case, it's got a lot of people talking. You know, it, people that I didn't even know were interested in rugby have, have had now that discussion with myself, um, reading up on articles. I think the Popham video went far and wide. And, you know, I think a lot of people saw that video. Um, which is good, and that, you know that's the that's the effect that I, I would know Popham would have wanted is to spread the word and educate, um, which I think will put everybody and just not the game in in a better position, and also a lot more sort of susceptible to, to make changes. You know, nobody likes change, but I think something like this will allow change at a much quicker pace. This that the fact that you want change, the fact that you put together this fifteen point charter, that's proof where it needed. I know that there's been criticism that the people involved in this lawsuit, uh, you know, there's, there's no vendetta against rugby. This is almost people, rugby people, recognizing that rugby isn't fit for purpose in its current state and doing something about it before we're kicking the can too long down the road yeah, again. Aren't look, we? I've not spoken to a single person involved in this who is not passionate about rugby still, uh, you know, who watches it every weekend, still speaks to the guys who play and heavily involved. Um, there's clearly, what I say from that chart, you can see that we just want positive effects to come from this. Look, that those, something like these charters, for example, weren't, in, you know, weren't there when we started playing or were playing, but they're now there. So they need to be utilised because you can say you don't want to repeat the same mistakes that have gone in the past. Um, so look, as long as they make the most of that situation, make, make the most of the experiences that myself and, and other players have gone through, then why shouldn't it be better for the game and, and lead for a brighter future? You know, I think people are going to be a lot more open to certain changes within the game if they're needed. You know, it's not up to me to sort of come up with any sort of new laws that would be required because um, that's, that's not, my, not my job. But, um, you know, I think people are now... The guard is down, and I think people will be a lot more open to any changes that needed to be made. How how do you view the game since you, since you retired? What what is it like for you just just watching a game? Because it, I mean, it feels just in general that people there's just a, just a wider perception about head injuries, and you know that the sort of the hits that were sort of glamorized a few years ago now just people don't feel comfortable watching. For someone who's actually had that, it's probably even more sort of. Yeah, I find no, I do find it really difficult. I, I watched. Um, a regional game the other day. Two players clashed heads, a horrendous head clash. One went off and the other one stayed on and the other one had blood coming out of his nose. You know, and it's just like, you didn't even hit your nose, you got blood coming out of your nose. That is a serious hit on your head. Um, it's just that you really wince watching those um, because you just, you think to yourself, right, I just hope those boys now are doing the right thing. Uh, going to have a good amount of time off um, and then hopefully come back and play again in a few weeks or a few months, you know, because um, I say this in interviews before, every single year players are going to get bigger, faster and stronger naturally because that's just what the game is all about. Um, it's about being the best. So tackles are going to get bigger. You know, the hits are going to become more powerful. Um, and especially like myself, we played outside backs. 
some people say to me, but you know, um, you don't you don't hit as much as like the back row. It's like, yeah, okay, I might not have as many tackles, but what you do get in the outside channels is when you do have tackles, they come from you both have 20 meter run-ups, and the collision can sometimes be huge on that basis. Look, look at the size of some of the wingers playing at the moment. I played against Nandolo a few years ago, and it was it was unbelievable the size of the bloke. And he's a winger. And you just look, you've got two people running, having a 40 meter run up to each other in the outside channels, so you kind of get huge collisions. Um, and I think that that is the issue is what does rugby do to almost curve, um, curve that issue? Because that's a bit of golf, really, isn't it? It's like technology and athletes are running away with a game of golf. And it's almost like that in rugby now, isn't it? It's, everyone's getting so much bigger, faster, stronger. It's, it's making almost the game potentially more dangerous. I guess that's, that's where it all stems from, isn't it? Because I think there's probably many areas where rugby wasn't ready in itself to go professional. And this is probably one of them because suddenly you went from the early nineties of players, you know, having full-time jobs and playing, you know, the odd time of week to within 15 years, you know, going for, you know, people now training most days a week to the the sort of the, the level of athletes and the size of the players that we've got now. It's just, it's, it's just grown exponentially, it's hasn't it? You, you see the size of these 16, 17, 18 year olds at the moment and it's literally unbelievable. Um, and then the scary thing is, is you could potentially, after 50 minutes in a game, bring seven of them on <laughs> all at once. Um, and, you know, and then you've got seven absolute brutes smashing a load of players that have been playing for 50 minutes. You know, it's, and, and that's uh, also, I think the downside of it is, is it doesn't create any space, you know, it's, it, which means that you're then constantly having to run into bodies and through people for the rest of that game. Um, because you're not, it's not just thing as tired bodies on, on the, on the rugby pitch anymore. It's constantly always somebody there. There's, you know, there's always somebody filling those gaps and, and somebody who's always got the energy to smash you every time. Um, and I think that's another downside to it. It's become a collision sport, hasn't it? Rather than rather yeah. than a contact sport. No, and you're right. You know, I speak to players now, and and I say, I say, look, it's, that game was really tough to watch because it was just constant pick and drive, pick and drive, smash up. And they, some of them are completely honest to me. They're, they're like, there's you know, there's just not much space on that field anymore, and especially in the, you know, the time of year we are now, where it's wet, uh, and some of those pitches you play on this is not the ability to, to find that space either and you almost have to run through players because players can fill a, a field no problem at all now you know especially with these new breakdown laws that come in you can no problem filling a field you've almost got to be able to be physically dominant in that game to, to win it uh, and by physically dominant that means is smashing the other player harder than he smashes you going back on to sort of the, the symptoms um I mean, I'm not sure sort of what your family life situation is. Are you married or? I got a partner. Yeah. So, so what what sort of effect has sort of she know has she noticed any sort of change or, or is it sort of things that you just largely notice yourself in terms of the symptoms and and things like that? Yeah, yeah. So the partner I'm with now, I met after I finished. So for her, she's not seen any change. She just knows me as I am now, um, which is good. You know, which is nice because. Um, you know, she's not seen me say at one place and now down at another, for example. Uh, but for me, like, I've learned to adapt. Like I said to you at the start, I've adapted to what I know my strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, I now got that baseline to work from from the tests I got, so I can really keep an eye now on if things are getting any worse. Um, so yes, it, it's good to know. Okay, yeah, it's a bit gut wrenching. At the same time, don't get me wrong, I'm not playing it down. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's good to know now because I've got something to measure it off. So I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Is 
it's it's a tough thing to know whether you you want to sort of know your future or not in many ways. That, that's that's largely what this is, isn't it? Is that you you know sort of where you could be in ten years, which some people appreciate, other people's maybe necessarily wouldn't. Yeah, look, some people well, yeah, some people don't want to know. That's fine, you know. And uh, there's actually no problem with that whatsoever. It's, I was in a position where I did want to know. Um, you know, I've got. Um, there's still think a lot of things I want to achieve in my life. You know, I got you know I'm a successful financial advisor. Um, you know, this you know I still want to travel the world and all, all these different things I want to do. And now I just want to go right. Okay, this is where I'm at. I want. I still you know can I still achieve those things? And I absolutely believe I can. Um, but for me now, it's just about keeping an eye on it really uh, and making sure if it does get any worse, I've now got the contacts um, to to approach and help me with that. Does does it affect the the job? In, in any sort of shape or form or, or, or have you largely managed to, to sort of adapt to that end? No, no, it's, no, no, it's absolutely fine. Look, I'm, I'm going towards being a chartered advisor and I'm still doing some very, very, very difficult exams, you know, which gives me confidence. And that's why I like doing these exams because it gives me a bit of a, you know, a bit of a lift to say, I oh, know I'm still absolutely fine. You know, don't worry, don't get too sort of down, downtrodden about it. Um, you know, it's, but for me, it's, it's not really about the memory, etc. For me, it's it's mainly these these ability to 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 exercise and uh, to do the things I continue to enjoy. Really, when you got the results, like you said, it was sort of confirmation of something you already knew. So, so what was the override? I imagine it was many emotions, but what what was the emotion? I guess was it one of relief? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of relief because you know that you've been living with something now for many years, and you think to yourself. I wasn't kidding myself, you know, I, I wasn't overplaying anything. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like an anxiety issue or anything. It was, you know, it, it was there, it happened. And now you've got the proof of black and white. Um, so yeah, there was almost a relief on that side of things. But like I said, a minute ago is without playing it down, it's still like, you know, it's, yeah, it's a reality sort of smacked to the face as well. Um, look, I, my scenario is really different to us. I'm quite a fair bit younger than everyone else that, you know, people would have heard from. Um, so my situation sounds different, but I suppose my worry is because I am a bit younger, does that just mean it's inevitable that I end up in the same position as them? Or is there something I can do now to potentially either slow that down or change change the route? Um, and that's really now what's going through my mind. I suppose, yeah, that's that's the massive worry, isn't it? It's, it's just... And the other thing which has sort of come out with this is the, the concern through some of the sort of the, the, the medics reports and the readings is that this this could be the, the sort of reality for as many as half of retired players. Yes, yeah. You know, I've had this discussion as well with, with a lot of guys and it's almost like a, they worry the floodgates could potentially open with, with this. Um and I suppose that's a worry for the fans as well, you know, because they're worried about the game they love um, could, could be completely flipped upside down. Uh, but, you know, I just need to make clear that anyone I've ever spoken to about this has no intention of doing that to the game. They want to make sure that um, they're looked after in the future and their families are looked after in the future. Um, let's see. Yes, we knew there was a risk up to a point of playing the game, but were we fully made aware of those risks? And, and that's what this comes down to, really. And uh, look, if, if if a lot of players can prove um, that they weren't made aware of these risks and were put in harm's way when there was the ability to take them out of the way, then they, they'll have a case. 